Hi, Jude. How are you? I'm fine, Tev. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm so excited for this interview. I mean, I've been absorbing so much of your information over the past couple of this past few days and this last week. It's been it's been amazing. How how's oh, on your side? Yeah, no, it's uh, it's great here. I'm enjoying the summer. I'm sort of getting to a point now with the end of this month. It's been so full on that mm. I'm really looking forward to taking an in breath hopefully for a couple of months, which means I there's a lot I'm feeling coming in. So I really want to be open and have the space to to really, you know, appreciate that and try and sort of have a sense of what it is all about. I mean, I can <laughs> imagine your work is is absolutely fascinating. There's so many different topics we could discuss today. I can only imagine the inundated emails you're probably receiving from so many people who are keen to hear about your work. Bless you. Well, it, it's well, it, it's very busy in a really good way because I do feel that with so much flowing, that you know now is the time, and and people, you know, are are really needing to have some hope that's authentic, to have some sense of a an underpinning and a, and a framing to to a, a sort of a healed worldview. You know, not a fragmented perspective based on the old paradigm but the but the evidence-based authenticity of something that can really you know empower us to come together you know and because that's the time isn't it and no, no, for sure i mean i'm great i'm i'm grateful that you've started already because i mean i love to just get started and at this point i think the, the question i want to ask you you talk about this cosmic hologram jude and mm -hmm. governed by information. I think let's explore this idea. I mean, it's been around for many years. It's uh, It's been around for decades, millennia, in fact. But only now do we see a growing body of evidence that supports this idea. And I think it would be amazing for the listeners and viewers to, to listen to this evidence and for you to express yourself in a nice open platform where um, the listeners and viewers can appreciate it. And just by the way, Jude, the, the audience are generally very technical for this podcast. So go into as much detail as you want. Don't don't shy away from the physics. Um, yeah, just I'm curious, this cosmic hologram and everything about it. I, I'm looking forward to this. Okay. Well, there's probably a couple of convergent points to be making here, but let's let's talk about the holographic principle to start with, because mm -hmm. that really, as you say, it's been around for, for a while now. And um, the sort of very early intimations of it really date back to David Bohm. Mm. So we're talking about, you know, four, if not five decades as a, as a sense of what this might mean. But of course, the, 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 the big move forward came when um, researchers were looking into the thermodynamics of black holes. And people like Gerard Terhooft and Leonard Susskind and Jacob Beckenstein and, and others. And the question really was, what happens to the information um, that's actually, you know, making up a, a massive star when at the end of its life, its nuclear fuel runs out and it collapses. And of course, the collapse is so gravitationally powerful that it actually collapses within an event horizon and therefore not even light can escape. I know there's a nuance with that, with with Stephen, Stephen Hawking's work, but essentially, you know, you, you, not even light can escape. And so at the event horizon, you suddenly get this blackness that we term a black hole. And of course, as the star collapses, a spherical star collapses as a spherical black hole. Mm -hmm. So the idea was, well, the, is the first of all, is the information lost? Because if it was lost, 
that would blow quantum physics out the water, literally. So there's a huge debate about firewalling and what's happening all of there. But as time has moved on, that has more and more evidence has suggested that actually, no, the the, the information Mm -hmm. is actually held at the event horizon. But then the big question was, well, um, what is that information? And where calculations were done that related it to the thermodynamics of the of the black hole, it was realised that the it was the, the information was proportional not to the spherical volume of the black hole, but the surface area of the event horizon. And then a, a few light bulbs went off <laughs> because that is very you know um, uh, you know reflective of what happens when on on Earth we we create technologically create a hologram you know take a beam of light we split it in two part of the beam is is focused on an object uh, it's bounced off the object and it collects information in that reflected light from the object it then combines with the initial beam to form a two-dimensional pattern of information that actually looks like an oil slick if you actually look at one at that point in its process, it looks like an oil slick. But it's basically um, an, a, a wonderful uh, ability of our universe to be able to transform information into waveforms and waveforms into information through Fourier transforms. And this is absolutely critical, not just to our human-made technological holograms, but also how the holographic principle works at the universal level, which we can come on to. But so essentially, there was a realization you've got this two-dimensional um, informational pattern, and when you throw another beam of light through it, it projects what we call a hologram. And the point of the hologram that it projects is that the whole is in every pixelation. So if we have a high-definition pixelation, then we, um, you know, all the, the wholeness, if it's an apple, for example, you get minuscule apples throughout the, the whole hologram. But Taking this now to our universe, it was realized that from black holes, we could extend this, what became known as the holographic principle, to the whole universe. And we could go back into the evidence for this because there is compelling evidence now at, at you know all scales of existence and many different fields of research. But the sense is that the, the, the appearance of our universe, the energy, matter, and space-time appearance of our universe is not its more fundamental nature but the appearance arises from this deeper realm of causation as meaningful information. Mm. And I always hyphenize information to, to, to sort of really emphasize its meaningful nature. But that meaningful information is actually accumulated on the boundary of what we call space-time and then holographically manifested as the appearance of our universe. So if we go back 138 billion years to the very first moment of space-time, not in a Big Bang. <laughs> we know it wasn't big. I mean, that was Fred Hall being very facetious. But, you know, the, the implication of a bang, it wasn't. It was incredibly fine-tuned and ordered. It began in its lowest informational state. So as time has flowed forward ever since, because of that entropic flow, began in its lowest informational state, um, as time has flowed forward and space has expanded, that holographic principle allied to other laws of physics that we can come on to has meant that our universe has been able to undertake this evolutionary arc mm-hmm. from simplicity to ever greater levels of complexity, experience, 
evolutionary potential, individuation, self-awareness at those levels, you know, that's the story of our universe because that first moment, not of a big bang, but the first moment of a big breath, an ongoing big breath. And the reason that space has to expand is because that is where the um, the accumulation of the emergent evolutionary information is held. So space didn't expand. There could not be more and more and more and more mm. information able to be expressed in its evolutionary arc. And of course, what happens is the pixelation of the holographic boundary of our universe, as Jacob Beckenstein understood, is pixelated at Planck scale. So in that sense, it's our universe is is the, the reality of our universe comes into form at the Planck scale, which is a basic measures of space and time and energy matter as a result and temperature. And so it all hangs together. But that pixelation scale, that Planck scale pixelation at a spatial level is as small as to a nucleus of a hydrogen atom as a hydrogen nuclei nucleus is to the whole universe it's mm. 10 to the minus 35 meters it's trillions of trillions of times more minute than our best high definition <laughs> human holograms and the point is that so that is the way that is the what we call the boundary of what we call space the holographic boundary mm. is able to encode more and more cosmic and universal information but the point is also that the flow of time itself at every Planck scale temporal pixelation, which is 10 to the minus 44 seconds, get your head around that. Numbers. You know, it, it's like every that every Planck scale time is like adding another, mm. you know, another movement of, of the whole universe's uh, emergence. Of course, it is so minute that it's rather like us watching a television screen you know, the pixelation is small to us, so we see the whole image. We don't see the pixels. Well, this is the pixelation of the our universe's reality. Uh, so that's a start anyway. I mean, it, it, it's a brilliant start, and I, I love the way you articulate this because it makes it a lot easier for people to understand. When you're talking about the fact that it's obviously ex expanding in the terms of the way, well, in the way that we used to express it, but now you're talking about it as information rather than matter in the same yeah. way we usually discuss it, people know... Yeah. I've seen a lot of people sort of mistake that for new content arising. Whereas we know that, well, according to the laws of thermodynamics, matter is neither created nor destroyed. So you talk about entropy rather than entropy. And I, think I do, I do. And, and, and as a child, this is really sad. When I was about seven or eight years old, I was always asking why are the, at the time it was mainly two laws of thermodynamics, yeah? But there's a third law which is relating to a closed system where the temperature of a closed system is inversely proportional mm -hmm. to its entropy. So my question for a long time was why are the two laws of, of thermodynamics? Because, you know, I'm a great follower of, of uh, one of my great heroes, Albert Einstein. And to paraphrase Einstein, you know, the universe as simple as it can be, but no simpler. And I add to fulfill its evolutionary purpose. Mm. And that add-on is really key because what I realized when I was writing the, the cosmic hologram and, and also more latterly, the story of Gaia, is we can actually restate those three laws of thermodynamics to what I call three laws of infodynamics. So the first law 
Um, if we go back to the initial, you know, the initial first of thermodynamics began, of course, essentially with Boltzmann mm -hmm. saying, as you say, the energy of a closed system, the energy of a closed system um, cannot change, uh, cannot be destroyed or created. It can change through time, but it cannot be created or destroyed. So if we take the, the, the science, the science going further than Boltzmann, um, and bless him, I mean, Boltzmann was doing his work before even atoms had been validated. So he was an amazing, again, pioneer and great giant, for which I feel we should all be very, very grateful. But taking that on, we now know that energy and matter are equivalent, equals mc squared. So that says that the energy matter of a closed system cannot be created or destroyed, just change through time. We also, for our laws of physics to work at all. And this is something that really still some folks struggle with, but all the evidence is really showing us that our entire universe is a, is a I call containered system mm -hmm. because closed system has a very specific topological perspective and it can be confusing. So as a containered system with this sort of holographic perspective, yeah, mm -hmm. it means that the energy matter of our universe from its first moment to its last, and there is also now more and more evidence that it's a finite life cycle, can neither be created nor destroyed. It can change. Now, that essentially is the first law of thermodynamics applied to our universe. But when we also appreciate that in 2012 and since, there have been experiments that have shown that um, information is every bit as real as any thermodynamic measurement, so work, heat, etc. So we also now know that we can start to expand that first law of thermodynamics to a first law of infodynamics, where information expressed as quantized energy matter mm -hmm. can neither be destroyed or created, but just change through the cycle of our universe. Now that's fine, because that in its essence, which is quantum physics, you know, because of course energy matter is the domain of quantum physics in description terms. That's all great, but it has no notion of space or time. Mm -hmm. It's so it, it it's it's the it's the seed, it's the it's the it's the framing for how our universe can exist. But this then, the second law begins to answer my seven-year-old's question: why do you need more than one law of thermodynamics? Because the second law which you say quite rightly is about originally the notion of entropy. So the idea is that the entropy of a, a closed, I'm going to say containered now just for consistency, a containered system, in, it, you know, it has to increase over time. And there's been a lot of misunderstanding about this because a lot of folks think of entropy as order to disorder. But what Boltzmann was really talking about was the micro, uh, the energetic microstates of such a system. And when you think about it, I, I, I sometimes use an analogy of a pack of cards. If you take a pack of cards out of its sort of box, they're very ordered. Yeah. You throw them up in the air and they land all over the place and you come together and they're not in that initial order. But rather than order to disorder, you're just increasing the number of states through time. So every time you throw them up and they land, more and more states are formed. So it's this it's, it's this progress through time of, of increasing micro-energetic states. But of course, we now also know that we, we can see information 
and again, we can go into a lot more detail of the evidence for this, as also being expressed not just as energy matter in its in its um, quantized its quantized form, but in a complementary way as space time. That's where the holographic perspective uh, perspective comes in. So that second law then, when applied to our universe, can be restated and in informational terms. That first of all, the entropy because I'm now talking about information. Mm-hmm. Whereas entropy is about energetic microstates, I move from entropy to entropy. It just makes it easier. But mm-hmm. the but the equation that describes the informational content of a contained system and the entropy, the energetic microstates of a contained system, is the same equation. Yes, originally defined by Boltzmann. So we're onto something here. And so now if we look at the second law of infodynamics, it says that the, and of course, let me go back to the first law for a second, because I want to bring in space and time here, because this is vital. So the second law of of, of thermodynamics says that the entropy of a contained system can only increase through time. Okay. And we're talking about contained system here. So now we move into 20th century physics, and we now know the equivalence of space and time. So relative space and relative time, lovely that they are, have to be conjoined as invariant space-time if we're going to have a universe that hangs together, yeah? Mm -hmm. And we can actually talk about a universe that hangs together and the laws of physics and all the rest of it. So we can then expand that first, second law of, of thermodynamics from the entropy of a contained system only increasing through space-time to the entropy of a contained system as its information content mm-hmm. only increasing in our universe's case through space-time. So literally as space expands and time moves forward, the information content gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and that's the entropy, okay? Third law is this is Cool. I love this because this really came to me quite late on because I was thinking, gosh, why is there a third law? Where does temperature come into this? But the third law of thermodynamics, as I mentioned, says that the temperature of a contained system and its entropy, now entropy, are inversely proportionate. So we now know that our universe began in its highest temperature form at the Planck temperature 10 to the 32 degrees Kelvin, and its lowest entropy. So as time flowed and space has expanded, the temperature has dropped. That drop in temperature is allied inversely to the increase in informational content, entropy. It is so simple, Teb. I mean, it all hangs together in this glorious way. And then the final cherry on top of it is essentially... um, that I talk about meaningful information, yeah? So the wholeness of our universe as meaningfully informed and holographically manifested, its framing can be can be done. It can be brought together mm-hmm. with these three laws of infodynamic. The first law is the most simple um, statement of quantum physics. The second is the simplest form of of relativity physics. But together, they combine within these three laws of infodynamics, which with a hyphen, 
are three laws that bring together our universe that meaningfully exists and purposefully mm. evolves. I think, I mean, it, 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 it's incredible because this is what we've been searching for for such a long time. People have been looking for a unifying theory of this yeah. universe. I mean, it's, it's been the goal. When you think about Stephen Hawking, and I know you guys, when you were the youngest participant and you won the award, I can't remember exactly where, but you obviously <laughs> met Stephen Hawking at that time many years ago. How old yeah. were you? 19 at the time? I, I was 19 yeah. and my, my mentor was Dennis Sharma, who mm. was Stephen's doctoral supervisor when they were at Cambridge. And then Dennis came over to Oxford and I was doing my physics at Oxford. And Dennis, bless him, he just took me under his wing and uh, after Stephen and Roger Penrose, who got the Nobel a couple of years ago, came together to to present to the postgraduate um, department. And uh, Dennis invited me along, even though I was an undergraduate. I was the youngest person in the room. I think I was the only woman in the room. <laughs> and then afterwards, Dennis said, why? Because it was all black holes. They were like, woof, this is coming forward. And Dennis said, why don't you enter this essay competition? Um, uh, and, and I said, sure. And he said, why don't you write about black holes? And I went, sure. <laughs> so I did, and I won the prize. <laughs> said, was it 25 quid? It was 25 quid. In those days, this was the early 70s, that was beer money for a term. <laughs> the reason why I bring that up um, is, I mean, of course, we think of Stephen Hawking, we think of theories of everything. I mean, there's a unification of um, quantum mechanics and space-time general relativity. How do we combine these concepts but also when you think of Stephen Hawking, you think of black holes, event horizons. I know, it's come forward. It's come full circle. It's quite mm. extraordinary. And I want to go into that. I mean, uh, unless you want to address the evidence first, how would you like to approach it? Would you like to go into black holes now or first talk about the holographic um, principle and how we've gathered more evidence over time and certain experiments that have helped to solidify this? Yeah, I'd be happy to. And, and I think the other thing that's really key in all of this is that our universe exists and evolves in this way, meaningfully exists, purposefully evolves, you know, in manifested holographically uh, and meaningful information. Um, but the other key aspect of it is our universe does so as a non-locally unified entity. And this, of course, if, if we can take a couple of minutes just to, to nail this one down, I think. Um, this is something that came out right in the early days of quantum physics. Um, and many of the quantum physicists were, of course, scientist mystics, you know, and some of them went to India and started really appreciating the, the Vedic tradition of ancient India, the, the Rishis, the, the Bhagavad Gita, the Upanishads, were basically telling the same story that they were, they were realizing. Um, and what became clear is that for quantum physics, quantum mechanics to work at all, essentially our universe had to be non-locally unified in its entirety. And of course, you know, Bell came out with his, you know, sometimes called a theory, sometimes called an inequality, but nonetheless, it was a test bed for this. And at the time, it was a theoretical perspective. And it was only many, many decades afterwards, you know, we're talking 70s, 80s onwards, that researchers were able to start to experimentally test this at greater than quantum scales, because it was clear it was, it was happening at a quantum scale, but was it able to be expanded to a universal level? So you had researchers coming along and progressively increasing the scale well beyond any quantum levels to show entanglement. Um, and in 2017 and then 2018, a group of, I think, it might have been 
four or five universities, one of which I think the lead was MIT. And what they were able to do was non-locally entangle photons of light in their laboratory with starlight from 600 light years away, but also triggered by light from a quasar, a very active galactic center. Two quasars, actually. One, I think, was 7.8 billion. The other was 12.2 billion light years away. And, and that was a triggering that actually created a level of entanglement that exceeded the inequality test, you know, the, the thresholds of, of Bell. But beyond that, in late last year, the Nobel Prize for Physics yeah. were given to three researchers who've been working on this for decades. Anton Zellinger, who was also part of that MIT collaboration, um, Alan Aspect and John Clauser. And the Nobel Prize is only given for settled physics. I often say Einstein didn't get it for relativity because it was seen as being quite contentious. He got it for the photoelectric effect. So the fact that we have now the Nobel, we've got this experimentation at cosmological scales, um, you know, we have all of the theoretical framing now to support this and the and the evidence across many fields of research that also play into this. Mm. You know, it's an amazing and an exciting time, not just for scientists, because as we'll go on, I'm sure, to explore. This is important. This is like, vital for everyone. A lot of implications. There's so many practical implications. Everything. Uh, Exactly. I mean, when you think about it, as you said, Nobel Prizes are only given to settled science. And I mean, he got it for the photoelectric effect. He didn't get it for what he's best known for. And, and, that's, and that's pretty incredible because at the time, of course, I mean, he called it spooky action at a distance. And we know that he wasn't comfortable with this concept. I mean, uh, he would have been now because I'm, I'm convinced he would have been now because, <laughs> of course, you know, he was he and the quantum physicists were working decades before the neutron. Mm. was discovered. I mean, let alone the hologram, let alone the cosmological understanding we have, let alone, you know, the, the sort of, 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 of uh, leaps and bounds we've had to understand the significance, the fundamental significance of information and meaningful information, which means, of course, the slippery slope, yes, please, of consciousness. Yes. You know, we have to bring this front and centre. Of course, what he did feel very uncomfortable about, as did Planck and others, is that whereas quantum physics and what they're all coming to really gave us the clues that mind and consciousness aren't something we have. They're literally what we in the whole world are. That was literally pushed to the side. And so it's taken almost another century and an, an inability with the old framing to reconcile quantum physics and relativity physics because they're at the, the appearance level of our universe of energy, matter, space, time. We've needed to understand this deeper level of causation, which is meaningfully informationally driven and then being able to show how information expresses itself in these complementary ways as the appearance of energy, matter, quantized energy, matter and entropic space, time brought in the holographic principle you know, I I think he'd be jumping up and down and going, yeah, because he was one of the folks who was saying, you know, mind and consciousness are what we we are, what yeah. the whole world is. Yeah. I mean, so Jude, I mean, for the listeners and the viewers, I mean, I was introduced to your work by Don, Don Hoffman. And, yes. and he, he told me it would be 
it would be a very fascinating conversation. And I, it clearly already is. But I remember when Don and I were talking about it, he was telling me about your work and I found it very intriguing because, I mean, Don has such amazing work being done. They're currently doing the new test to experiment whether uh, physics arises from consciousness. And I think they just released it yesterday. Well, I think it was, yeah, 26th of June. So yes. um, when, when you talk about consciousness um, from an idealism perspective, because this is fundamentally what the view entails from a philosophical perspective. It's, it's an idealist view of consciousness. Consciousness is what we are and everything that there is technically in a sense. How do you work around this concept of consciousness? How do you define it? How do you explain it to people? Because obviously this podcast is called Mind Body Problem. I mean, Mind Body Solution for a reason. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Well, I, you know, the, the very terminology, what's consciousness? You know, you, you, you'll get five answers from four people. Um, and I, I, have a, I have a very broad church of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a, a friend of mine, um, Professor Max Vellmans, differentiates mind and consciousness and, and talks about consciousness as a level of awareness, whereas mind is fundamental. You know, we can talk about mind as being cosmic mind, as Einstein would have called it, the ground of all being, you know. And, and so in that regard, um, our universe is, is mindful. And, you know, the way I'm working with this and my next book will dive deeper into the, you know, the ground of all being and the rest of it. But both for the cosmic hologram and for the story of Gaia, I really wanted to show how what I would also refer to as cosmic mind, an eternal and infinite mind, mm -hmm. has thoughts, a thought, thoughts that, you know, we term our universe, which is very much... Um, you know, pervading universal wisdom teachings. And in my own explorations, you know, as a noetic experiencer all my life is, is very much the way I've experienced realities. But by being able to articulate it is as cosmic consciousness, cosmic mind, um, expressing itself as the appearance of our universe through the ex articulation a digitized, meaningful information. You know, I mean, we're almost predisposed to this now because our, our communications technologies, you know, take the image of me, gather it, all the information, the meaningful information about me, translate it into digitized ones and zeros, squirt it down a cable off a satellite to your computer, you know, recombine it as an image, does the same vice versa. You know, this goes back to the incredible attributes of Fourier transforms, the way our universe can, you know, make this beautiful play of information, waveforms. It all hangs together, but it hangs together with the evidence showing that it has innate meaning. This is the key, I think. It's, this is not random data, just as our conversation. Well, I don't know. Some people may say it's random data. <laughs> but hopefully our conversation is meaningful. But, of course, the meaningful nature of our universe is not dependent in any way on human sentience. Yes. It's a universe that is itself living in that sense, mindful, informational, where everything in it from, you know, atoms and molecules to planets and plants and people have a part of that meaning and essential purpose. So it's a broad church, 
but it's 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 innately the same fundamental stuff the nature of reality jude how what what are your thoughts on don's work um i well when i first I, it was so lovely because don and i met at the science and non-duality uh conference in in california before the pandemic and had lunch together and and really enjoyed being together and have had a number of conversations since and i love his work He's coming. I'm coming from this primarily as a as a cosmologist, and as an evolutionary biologist and a systems person, and you could argue a philosopher, but many many different hats. And and because I'm so curious, I like to join the dots and see where they lead. Don comes from it more from human consciousness, yes, and how our human consciousness relates to this wider consciousness. And his book is is very provocative because, of course, from the human consciousness perspective, our senses are not direct in in direct touch points with universal consciousness. We 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 moderate, we mitigate, mm -hmm. exactly. yeah, our sense of self through a, a number of ways of forming meaning. But when we met, I realised that he wasn't in any way decrying or, or not acknowledging universal reality. He was only really exploring the ways in which we relate to that larger understanding of reality. So, you know, as microcosmic co-creators, as I call us, of our universal living intelligence, um, he and I are very close. So, you know, I mean, we, 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 we agree very much. What I really love as well is he's working with a number of quantum physicists in in a, in a sort of more specified way of, of how this works. But what I would say is the work that I've done offers us the underpinning and framing through the, these three laws of infodynamics. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm happy to, to sort of say to Don and, and the other guys, I'm really excited about what you're going to come forward in this. Because it's going to come, I, I just feel it's all convergent. It's all the same direction of travel. I'm glad you brought up quantum physicists because, I mean, another theory of consciousness that that circulates is is that of Penrose. When you think of Stuart, Stuart Hameroff and Penrose, they, they talk about quantum consciousness and the microtubules yeah. of cells. Your thoughts on that? Well, I write about this a little bit in, in, in well, I write about quantum bi biology mm. in uh, in the story of Gaia because whereas the cosmic hologram was bringing the evidence and this this underpinning and framing of these laws of infodynamics and the cosmology and all the rest of it. That was back in 2017. In, in last year with the story of Gaia, I wanted to tell the evolutionary story, not just of our planetary home, but our entire universe, because our the story of our universe, as 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 my friend Brian Schwimm and I both talk about, is is a story of us. You know, our, the hydrogen in our bodies is as old as the universe. We're not just stardust, even though we are. Exactly. We go back way back. You we're know, all, all 13.8 billion years. Like we're all 13.8 billion years old. So in that sense, the, the evolutionary story is, is, is extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And what you see throughout it and, and really came to me ever more strongly as, as I wrote the book or the book wrote me, I feel, <laughs> is a sense of evolutionary purpose. Because what you have, you know, all the way through is this almost preparatory processes that things were in place that could then be assembled when the conditions were right. 
you know, if we go back before the, our planetary home came into being about five billion years ago, around five and a half billion years ago, the harbingers are and the nutrients that would create our our sun and, and our planetary system were all there gestating in interstellar clouds of, of gas and dust, including complex molecules. And we start to get the sense of that quantized nature of potential playing out there, where even within those complex molecules, we were starting to get enzymes coming into being. And enzymes, you know, um, are vital to the speed in which proteins come together and and, and build uh, biological organisms because the enzymes speed those, those processes up dramatically without in themselves changing. And the view very much is that that involves quantum tunneling. Mm-hmm. And um, so when Stuart and, 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 and Roger have been bringing these ideas of microtubules forward, I don't think it's the most fundamental mm-hmm. aspect of how this is playing out, but I think it's an important contribution to the conversation. And other people such as Jim and Khalili, Al-Khalili has also written on quantum biology. Um, you know, there is a there, there's a view that some of them have expressed that photosynthesis is is quantized in nature. I I personally haven't seen the evidence that's convinced me of that. I think there are other processes that are at play that don't actually need that aspect. But there are others where, as I say, enzymatic action and, and others, there are other ways in which the DNA uh, double helix is formed and 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 molecules such as um, Posner molecules um, and the way that that works um, that can really hold memory for a very long time, likely because of quantum resonance. Mm-hmm. Yes, I write about all of this in 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 the story of Guy because it's very important and it's very much an emergent uh field of study yeah i know so i would i'll definitely be putting links to your books below and to the website of course where when i read i remember while reading i was thinking to myself um this there were two specific experiments i wanted to ask you about while reading it came to my mind immediately and i thought of the observer effect and the double slit experiment yeah Um, and i I wanted to just know your general thoughts on that so i have one more question but i think before i get to the second one just what are your general views on that because when i interviewed Don, I remember talking about when when we talk about consciousness being fundamental and the entirety of our reality. Um, and I said I labeled the podcast a new experiment to test whether consciousness, with whether physics arises from consciousness. And someone commented saying, "Have you ever heard of the observer effect?" As a joke. So I think with you, I'd let, let's address that how that supports this okay. info dynamic. I really, I really want to though expand this this perception this perception mm-hmm. that the universe is the universe whether we're here or not. Yes, yes, I think that's really important because so much uh, perspectives about consciousness is human centered, yeah. and I'm not suggesting that's problematic. I'm saying it's both and. Yes. And the way that we as microcosms of our universe as macrocosmic consciousness, sentience, livingness, mind, what you know, because I think we can get caught up in the languaging a little bit. And I want to sort of get a more sort of generic sense of this. Um but yes, yeah, so so going back to remind me, I think I'm losing the thread uh, here. So with when, when observer, we think- effect, yeah. observer effect, observer yeah. effect. Yeah, okay. 
that it, it, the point is we're embedded within a, a conscious universe. Mm-hmm. There cannot not be yeah. an observer effect because we're both observer and observed. Mm-hmm. We are naturally embodied. We're inseparable. Mm-hmm. We are literally inseparable. But I think the important point there is that the unity and unified nature of, of, of uh, non-locally unified nature of our universe has two aspects. First of all, it means that although our universe exists and, and evolves as a non-locally unified entity, within space-time, mm-hmm. light is the cosmic speed cop. Signals cannot go faster than the speed of light within space-time, which means that we can have this journey of 13.8 billion years. We can have a flow of time. We can have a causality. And this is important when we start to explore supernormal phenomena mm-hmm. Because although this both and enables super, you know, naturalizes supernormal phenomena, naturalizes our intuitive insights, naturalizes synchronicities, it's a both and. So there is this causality playing through. So, you know, I was, I was in a panel with Dean Radin and the Ions folks a couple of days ago, and Don was being given a prize there, which is wonderful uh, for his work. Um, but essentially, because it's 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 a both and, we are both observer and observed. We are inseparable, but that unity is differentiated. Mm. It's unity in diversity. It's unit in radical diversity. So yes, we're always we're informational beings within an informational universe, whether we know it or not. We're in continuous dialogue. Multilogue, mm-hmm. yes, with all around us. We we are, you know, we talk a whole worldview of act local, feel global, think cosmic, because we are all and we are uniquely. Our universe is breathing through us, mm-hmm. each of us uniquely. So, so let's apply this this law of infodynamics. Let's apply infodynamics to different systems, so people can get a better understanding or yeah, a better sure. picture of this. So let's think of it from. Maybe let's take into account a biological scale or something like DNA then apply it to something like human civilization, take it to economics. Um, and then we continue from there, just maybe start off from, a, from an atomic scale, perhaps, and then let's work our way up. Okay, let's do that. Because what we're finding is that the informational patterns, the relational dynamic informational patterns, um, many of, of whom we call fractals. Mm-hmm. Not all the relationships are, are fractal per se. We have other relationships that we can come to, for example, power laws. But we find the fractal relationships, which are essentially geometric. When Beckenstein was doing the, the holographic work on information and the pixelation at the boundary of what we call space-time, that Planck scale pixelation on that two-dimensional boundary of space-time is triangular, okay? Because then it can tile without a break. It's the ideal geometry that doesn't overlap. So within each Planck scale, yes, pixelation, Mm -hmm. there is essentially one bit of information. And it's at such a minute level that when we scale it up to atoms or or quarks or neutrinos and, and beyond, it has a lot of information already at that accumulated scale. But what we find is that, for example, when um, an element is going through a phase transition, for example, between an insulator and a metal, its electrons cluster fractally. 
Yeah. So from that scale, we start into because of course the Planck scale is much tinier. That pixelation scale is much tinier. So we're at atomic scale. We also find fractals running through from that scale upwards. So for example, on a planetary scale, um, clouds are fractal. Um, in that sense, uh, weather patterns are fractally based, um, river systems are fractal. But the key thing here, and let me just go up to cosmic scale, and then I want to come back because there's a key point here. Um, we find that at a planetary, a planetary scale, but also when we look at a solar system scale, the solar wind is fractal. Um, some of the of the the ways in which the resonances of of planetary orbits and 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 planetary the planetary system as a whole have fractal relationships. We go into the galaxy, we see fractal patterns here. We go to clusters of galaxies, we see fractal patterns. And in 2017, uh, Afshadi and Skanderis and a group of folks um, looked at the cosmic microwave background which is, as you know, is the relic radiation left over from what's often called the recombination era around 380,000 years after the beginning of the Big Breath, uh, where space had expanded enough and temperature cooled down enough to become transparent because before that, space was transparent to acoustic signaling, but not to light. When that happened, again, there was like a phase transition where... Um, space became transparent and therefore there was a relic radiation that filled the whole of space at that time and because of the temperature that was pre that was in uh, in play at that time we think that it would have had an orange glow which I quite like the idea of really um anyway that filled the whole of space as space has continued to expand ever since that those wavelengths have, have sort of lengthened to microwave uh, microwaves now. And so we call it the cosmic microwave background, and it fills the whole of space. In 2017, an analysis from the uh, WMAP, the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe map, um, was able to show fractal patterns in the minute temperature differences throughout the whole of the cosmic microwave background. So we have fractals all the way up and all the way back. But going back to us, we find that the same fractal patterns that underpin, for example, complex systems such as ecosystems is the same fractal patterns that underpin the nodes and the networking uh, points of the internet. Yeah, mm -hmm. We find, for example, moving beyond fractals. So let's look at power laws. Let's look at the incidence, for example, of earthquakes. We know that when we plot the incidence of earthquakes against their destructive power on a logarithmic scale, the Richter scale, that they form a straight line. So in other words, there's no such thing as an average earthquake. If you apply all the earthquakes, big to small, on that, uh, you know, that frequency and then logarithmic destruction, they form a straight line. It's called a power law, which says there's only one relationship for all of them, that uh, an earthquake that is twice as powerful logarithmically is four times less frequent. That's it. So there's no such thing as an average, no Gaussian curve there. But at the end of the Second World War, a researcher called Lewis Richardson, and then subsequently to that, a researcher at Miami University, a gentleman whose surname is Johnson, but whose first name eludes me, um, looked at human conflicts at all scales and measured them in terms of their frequency against their destructive power in terms of human fatalities and found the same relationship. 
slightly different pitch, but nonetheless the same relationship as for earthquakes. Because what we're realizing, going back to what we're saying throughout this, is the appearance of our universe emerges from deeper levels of meaningfully in formation. And that applies to our human behaviors, our human consciousness, as well as universal consciousness and planetary sentience that brings forward these same relationships at all scales. But the key here is if we have the collective awareness to make choices of conflict, then we can evolve our collective awareness to make choices of peace. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is, I think, one of the most fundamental conversations of our time, because this is what this new understanding and this, you know, this a unitive narrative that can, you know, there's an underpinned and framed by the evidence, but also can underpin and frame our choices and therefore our behaviors. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And that's why, I mean, when I labeled this podcast, I said that um, this podcast explores the nature of reality, consciousness, free will, but morality is a big part of it because whatever belief you have regarding the nature of reality or consciousness will determine how you perceive your ethics, your morals, your values. There's, yeah. And with your view, I see such a deep, caring, healing nature towards it all. And I, I am going definitely going to touch on these practical implications. But before we do, I just want to definitely make sure that we, we touch on as much of this the, the science behind what you're talking about, because it's, it's so amazing and it's so intriguing. Uh, one thing I did want to touch on before that was I mean, there was the big breath. It all started slow out breath. You often talk about uh, Vedic traditions and the Brahman and how they started yeah. this concept. What happens as we go along all the way to the end? Well, the evidence we've got now is is suggesting that it's a continued out breath. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for a long time there was this, is it going to be, um, is it going to do that or is it going to bounce back or what's going to happen? And we find that, you know, the acceleration, very surprisingly for a lot of people, that the accelerate the, the, the expansion of our universe began to accelerate again about five billion years ago. So it started with an acceleration, the first time, you know, the first epoch of the big breath. It then slowed down because the balance of gravity and 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 uh, dark energy and all the rest of it. Uh, one out, one in. Um, but then um, a space had expanded to the point of about five billion years ago. The acceleration began again, mm-hmm. and it looks as though that there's nothing to, there's no way in which that that is likely to stop. And and when I bring the third law of infodynamics into the piece, of course, the temperature continues to drop mm-hmm. as the information continues to increase. You can see that there's a sort of a cycle here. Because the temperature of our universe, as I said, began at the Planck scale at the first moment of the big breath, 10 to the 32K. It's now down at just over 2.7K. So we're looking to see that this this life cycle, rather like a bubble, yeah, comes to a completion at some point. The other thing is there was some really good work done by, I think, Dennis Sobral, a few years ago that I, I reference in the cosmic hologram showing that the sort of the, 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 the sort of epochs of stellar formation and a big, big acceleration about 9 billion years ago, and then another, another, but progressively less and less fewer and fewer because the hydrogen to create new stars is, is being used up. So the view is that probably something like 98% of all stars that could form 
have already formed. Many of them have come to the end of their lives. And again, you know, as I write in the story of God, there's this incredible evolutionary arc, you know, of, of, of massive stars at the beginning that form black holes and supermassive black holes and galaxies. And then, you know, it, it's just a beautiful, beautiful um, journey, journey forward. So my perspective, again, with the evidence, you know, I'll follow, I hopefully <laughs> follow the evidence wherever it leads, but this is where it seems to be leading us that yeah. our universe is, is finite in form. It's a, it's a great thought form, but a finite thought form in that sense, in the mind of the cosmos. And we're probably closer to the end than we are to the beginning in that regard. And I mean, it does work. So a, a lot of people seem to, well, from what I've gathered, seem to think that you're not, you're, you're talking about something completely different, but you're not. You're actually taking the current work we have and you're framing it in a different perspective. And, and I think that's important to note is that it's not that you're making new claims in a no. sense, you're more just changing it and adjusting it in a way that completely shifts mindsets altogether. How yeah. do you feel this has impacted the scientific community? Because you know how scientists can be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <I do>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure you've been, because I, I, anytime someone talks about anything that goes outside of the status quo in science, you, you complete, you're labeled as so many different things that, uh, how has it been on your receiving end? <laughs> it's it's been extraordinary, actually. It's been rather wonderful okay. because, in a way, because as you say, I'm I'm actually working with the evidence, and yeah. I'm working with the evidence of tens of thousands of researchers. I guess what I can bring is an ability to see patterns and an ability to join up the dots, because so many scientists are working in this incredibly depth. Of, of work, but they're not seeing what so-and-so is doing or so-and-so is doing in a different field of study. And what I can do because of, you know, my breadth of interests is I can see the bigger picture of what it's all coming with and, and the direction of travel. And, you know, uh, also as a cosmologist, you know, we're getting folks like Professor Brian Cox, yeah. who wrote a book with Jeff Forshaw last autumn, uh, last fall, um, basically on black holes, but coming at the end of that book to say more and more it's looking that the appearance of our universe is not its deeper reality. I don't know what that means, he says. But that's the point that cosmologists are coming to because that is where the evidence is leading us. Now, you're right. I think, you know, I'm also a, a student of the history of science and I can see how certainly over the last, certainly until the 20th century, there was a perspective very much of this separation of science and spirituality. And I can absolutely, you know, I've studied all the reasons for this and get it. But we're coming full circle or full spiral now mm -hmm. because the leading edge discoveries, and they really are only in the last few years, mm -hmm. the holographic principle, the understanding of information. You know, my, my redefinition of the laws of thermodynamics to infodynamics, it's, a, it's simple. Anybody could have come up with that. The reason I did it is because I saw it with new eyes, as you say, I, I, and I wasn't caught with the old perspective. Mm. Um, and so in that sense, and that's what Marcel Proust, of course, said, that the journey of discovery is not discovering new lands, it's seeing with new eyes. And so I think it, it almost is, is a situation where once somebody 
is willing to see with new eyes, it all fits into place. And it's not in any way dishonouring everything that's come before. We've needed to take every step, it seems to me. So I'm not into blame and shame on any way. But we do have a paradigm. Yes. That's actually not even 20th century science. It's 19th century science of, of a mechanical, mechanistic, materialistic, separatist universe. And that is being turned on its head. And when we bring consciousness in, it's not, it's, it's, it, how can I put it? It's for all faiths and none. It's human. It's who are we? It's remembering who are we and and not sort of making any labels or anything else. But this is where the evidence is inviting us to remember. Um, Jude, before I go on to the next portion where I'm going to talk about the practical implications as well as the Eastern philosophical um, aspects of how you came to your views at some point, uh, the last thing I want to ask you is, is there anything you want to clarify in terms of the way you approach infodynamics, uh, cosmic hologram, all of this, anything that you feel has always been misunderstood that you've been itching to kind of just get out there and let people know this is actually what I meant? Not misunderstood, but I feel that there's still um, a misperception mm -hmm. of people who work with entropy mm -hmm. and seeing it as this order to disorder I was mentioning earlier, rather than as initially an increase in energetic microstates and now an increase in informational content and now an information, an increase in meaningful informational content is this perspective that came through um, with people like David Bohm and Prigger Joan and others, realizing that in what's called a dissipative system, such as our planet and a person, um, that there seems to be a sort of a, a, a switch around of entropy. So entropy, order it's not order to disorder, it's somehow disorders become order. And so what I've been able to share, and more and more people are now getting it, is it's the old concept or the misperceived concept of entropy as order to disorder rather than from increased energetic states and now information. Because then what you realize in dissipative systems, let's talk about our planetary home, okay? A dissipative system, actually it, it, energy comes in, energy flows through, what's not needed to um, uh, support the homeostasis of that system is then dissipated. Okay. If you think of that as information coming in, expresses energy, information therefore used as a coherence to, a, you know, to, to support the coherence of that system. And what is not utilized gets dissipated. So again, that then correlates with this perception, both of, um, both of, the meaningful information, not just as underpinning, but the very stuff of that system, that that throughput enables its coherence through its lifetime, whether it's a human lifetime or a planetary lifetime. But also it shows that then going back to that third law, that temperature difference is a measure of the entropic potential. Yeah. Okay. So that, so that in a planetary, you know, if we have a planet where that dissipative process stops, the temperature difference between that planet and ambient space will, will, will reduce, 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 reduce. Yeah. When we come to the end of our life cycle, 
our temperature, when we die, when our physical bodies die, our temperature then correlates with our ambience. So the ability by maintaining a temperature difference in a dissipative system is a measure of its continuing entropic potential. I see. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I get that. It's, it's, and that, that's the that's the one thing that I think people have quite a lot of because you know terms like negentropy and syntropy and all sorts of stuffs come in. They're not needed when you understand it in these terms. You can appreciate it's rather like the epicycles of medieval astronomy, <laughs> pre-Copernican astronomy. You don't need it, and what you get is a much simpler understanding when you're seeing it mm. with new eyes. So you know the Copernican. Putting Sol in the middle of our solar system, suddenly you don't need epicycles and all that complications, exactly. and you don't need the complications of negentropy and syntropy, which of themselves, um, you know, uh, violate this <laughs> universal continuing increase in entropy. I think I think it's it's very apparent. I mean, if you if you have a hammer, you look for nails. And uh, <laughs> science, I mean, it's very objective. So you you're constantly looking from an objective standpoint. I mean. Um, it's very difficult to get step out of that. And I, I know I'm the same in that regard, because when I started this podcast, my views and consciousness were very fixed and firm. And yeah. the more it's gone on, the more it's continuously changed and, and, and nonstop. I mean, <laughs> at this point, I, I question reality all the time, but it's, it's something I've always done. But I mean, that fixed belief is no longer there. It's something that I'm open to, to exploring these new ideas. I don't think that the child in me would have, would have explored concepts like this with so much um, uh, just openness. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. And at this, yeah, this point, is, I mean, I love it. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's all, it's all a work in progress. Mm, mm. It's all a work in progress. I mean, for me, what's exciting is having had my first direct experience of, of a, you know, multidimensional realities, you know, noetic experiences from the age of four, I've I've also it's both and I've also really 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 valued, you know, science as a process, as long as as Francis Bacon, who is the father of the empirical method, you know, follow the evidence wherever it leads. And I do feel he's been given a, quite a bad rap, which I would disagree with, because as as a friend of mine, another friend of mine, Peter Dawkins, who's a wonderful Baconian scholar. He really has guided, you know, like you, you've you been, uh, my guidance with this is that, you know, 400 years ago, when Bacon in 1623, uh, when they published De Augmentum Scientarium, uh, which was the beginning of the empirical method, um, you know, Bacon's philosophical, deeply philosophical perspectives, it seems to me, were that it wasn't going to peripheralize the divine, as he would have called it, but to reveal the divine through its empiricism. Because, of course, he was living in a time of Queen Elizabeth II and then James I of of England, 6th of Scotland, where superstition, you know, ruled ruled the waves in that sense and the church's authority. So it's almost come this full journey now where leading edge science is, is revealing that universality in those wisdom teachings and the wholeness and the divinity within everything. Exactly. And I think just to to put it all together, because now as we reach the end, well, the end of this podcast, at least for now, maybe we'll do a round two, but let's talk about, I mean, unity and non-locality is the, is the basis 
of all of this. And at some point, it all comes together for us to understand and realize that everything is interconnected. Um, There is no separation. Uh, This this thought of separating things needs to slowly dissipate. And this does have practical implications. I think as we get into that, let's start from your East, the Eastern philosophy that's inspired this and taken because we've spoken a lot about Western science at this point. And I'm curious for you to apply the Eastern philosophy into how we should approach the practical and ethical implications moving forward with this theory. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, first of all, as you say, Tev, I mean, you know, our worldview is, is our mindset, our narrative, our underpinning narrative. Mm-hmm is the way we see the world and therefore the choices we make. And we've had a, a Western secular worldview of, 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 as I say, based on 19th century science yeah. and all the structures that came from that, because in the 19th century, with that mechanistic, separatist, materialistic perspective, you know, our structures became hierarchical. Mm. Um, you know, whether it's our education, whether it's our organizations, our governance, or whatever, 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 whatever. Um, and now that's completely been turned on its head and, and converging much more with universal wisdom teachings and, and very much those of, of the Eastern traditions and the indigenous traditions. And so, you know, for example, the Chinese, I Ching, talks about in the beginning is the one, not was, is. The one becomes two, the two becomes three, and from the three, 10,000 things are born. You know, the yin-yang symbol, um, we haven't even touched on the feminine, masculine and all of that, but that's so important. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the yin-yang symbol has, you know, the, 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 the yang with the yin coming out and the yin with the yang coming out, but the wave in that symbol is often not mentioned, but the wave is that creativity of what this all means. And yeah, I talk a lot about trinities, philosophically trinities, you know, the masculine, the feminine and the child and in that resolution. And that's again seen through many, many traditions. Um, We talk about the Vedic tradition as we have before, Indra's net. You know, the tradition talks of Indra's net as as an analogy of a reality where every, you know, reality made up of of beautiful gems of many, many different colors and all different facets and each facet reflecting others and linked by golden threads. Well, that is a millennia old description in my perspective of the cosmic hologram <laughs> in south africa we because i'm 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 indian of hindu de, um yes. origin and descent and but i was born and raised in south africa and uh the south african culture there's this word it's called ubuntu oh, i love that word i love yes. that concept. i am because you are exactly. and I think that fits exactly with what you're saying yeah it's exactly that and ubuntu is so beautifully inviting in mm-hmm. because the other thing is that I love about Ubuntu, many things I love about Ubuntu. But I talk about, you know, often we're now describing unity and diversity. But for for a number of years now, I've said, let's take that a step further beyond even unity in inclusion to unity in belonging. Because this is showing us that we all belong. And that is the very heart of Ubuntu. Yes. Ubuntu is so fundamental because you don't have to be invited into that relationship. You are inherently, fundamentally part of that relationship. And this is what we're discovering. Mm. And so altogether, I mean, this unification, this 
Tell me about the overall goal for us as a society. How would you like this infodynamics and everything you've spoken about today to be applied somehow into it all? Well, it, again, these things are, are. Have you ever heard of, of somebody called Mr. Magoo? He's very much in in America, yeah. Hmm. And he always backs into things and then looks around and goes, "Oh, that's the story of my life." I think. <laughs> <laughs> so, a couple of years ago, with all of this and writing the cosmic hologram at the time, and then the story of Gaia. Uh, sorry, writing the story of Gaia at the time, cosmic hologram would come out. Um, I came together with a number of, of change makers and folks who'd been involved with the United Nations for decades and involved with the Sustainable Development Goals and what's called Agenda 2030. And we're getting more and more frustrated because this realization that they were coming, not necessarily from the people who were trying to negotiate them, but certainly the way they were articulated and then you know, led out very much from this siloed perspective, mm. you know, 17 goals and lots of measurements, but the goals themselves and the realization from the, these 150 or so change makers that they could never be implemented with that sort of mindset. I mean, Einstein said, you know, you can't solve a problem from the same mindset that created it. <laughs> well, we have a we have a problem because of a, an illusion of separation, a dis-ease of separation. We cannot solve it from that same mindset. So all that I'm sharing and all that the evidence is pointing to is overturning that perspective and, and bringing in this realization and understanding uh, of wholeness. Mm -hmm. So what these folks were really wanting to say is how can, because they were coming from this perspective, how can we bring this perspective of wholeness into the SDGs and Agenda 2030? And one of the things that came forward was the need for a, a narrative that could share this. Because we're a narrative species, we're storytelling species, you know, we sit, we sat around, you know, from the very beginning, sharing stories and sharing perspectives, who we are. And what are we? Who are we in the world? Where do we come from? Who are we? Where are we going? And, you know, in that sense, making meaning of our existence. So we now have the evidence that is converging, the scientific evidence that's converging with universal wisdom teachings to offer us a unitive narrative, mm. to underpin and frame us to be able to come together and, and serve potentiality for transformational change. So I got involved with this group of folks and I, I put my hand up and volunteered. Um, that's my mum. My mum always said, volunteer, volunteer. <laughs> you may not know what you're volunteering for, but volunteer. So I did. And I was, I was one of the co-authors of a unitive narrative mm. that um, these folks took on board and adopted and the evolutionary leader circle of whom I'm a member also adopted and others. But what that's now doing, that came forward just over a year ago. What that's done in the meantime is that late last year, the United Nations for the first time in its 70-year history adopted a group of NGOs and organizations founded on the unitive narrative, this unitive narrative. And so this unitive cluster now has a voice, has voices okay. in all of the things that United Nations are doing. But that's just one thing, because the other thing it's now underpinning is bringing together 
folks who are really wanting to transform economics and finance system from a unitive perspective. You know, folks who are looking at regenerative economics, um, donut economics, uh, living systems economics, but all of it underpinned and framed by unitive narrative that then deepens it still further into unitive principles that serves the health, the whole being of our planetary home and our people. Unitive education. How do we share this story with folks of all ages and in so many different ways? And 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 how do we share this in ways through arts yeah. and 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 culture? Because this is what this is about. This is the many, many stories that can arise and be shared from this underpinning of a unitive narrative. So that's what I'm doing pretty much most of my time now and sharing this this understanding, but it's vital mm-hmm. that it moves beyond understanding. Yes. It well, has to be experienced it, to be embodied. Well, I hope this this podcast helps to get that message out, Jude. I know it's I know you're time sensitive and and we've sort of reached the end of this conversation, but uh, I just want to say thank you so much. And to quote, I mean, your work and obviously Ubuntu, I am a cosmic co-creator because you are a cosmic co-creator and and thank you so much for being part of this creation with me and a part of this experience. Bless you, Tev. And it's folks, it's folks like you. I mean, I've done so many podcasts now and I'm in awe oh. of each and every one of you as hosts because your passion, your your clarity, your service is so, so important because the folks you will reach in their own way will, you know, share this in their own way. We don't know where this ripples, but we know it does because as you say, Ubuntu, we are inseparable. We are each unique and we are inseparable. And, you know, this offers us authentic hope. This, I hope, empowers us and inspires us. And this, for me, seems that this is the invitation of the universe mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and our planetary home, Gaia. You know, they're saying, come on, invite <laughs> us to this adventure. This has to be one of the most inspirational. Well, I'm feeling well inspired. One of the most inspirational talks I've had so far on this podcast. <laughs> so thanks. I'm liking so far because there may be others that are even more inspirational <laughs> to come. Yeah, no, I've, I've enjoyed it tremendously. Thank you so much, Jude. I wish you all the best. And yeah, I'm looking forward to chatting to you again sometime. I'd love that, Tev. Anytime. Yeah. I'd love Thank that. You so much. Uh, take care, Jude. And yeah, we'll keep in touch. I'm looking Thank forward you. to this hearing. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks.